Well, I am glad the opportunity that, that we get together just to be able to worship and just to point people to Jesus. It means a lot. One of the things that I want you to understand as we've celebrated baptism is that, man, would you just for a second think about the fact that we get to be part as, as the body of Christ to point people to a hope that will transform their lives. And you can be part of that. And I, I just want you to own that and kind of just thank God that he has called you to such a place where, where you get to celebrate that with other people. Um, we are continuing our, our study through really looking at the covenants in the Old Testament and how they point um, to Christ. And we're, we're trying to merge that together. And today we've, we've got lots of scripture that really cover that. Um, one of the neat things, too, I, I want to share with you that, that as you've been walking with us, um, those of you who use our notes, we kind of added a, a little something by subtracting something. Isn't that crazy? That's what we did. So we've added an opportunity for you to actually open your Bibles um, by taking out the, the scripture that was in the notes because some of you weren't even opening your Bibles. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles. Um, and, and so if you would, if you've got the notes or if not, we're going to start in Exodus 19. But as you turn there, we're looking at Advent, Advent meaning the coming or the arrival of Christ. We're anticipating this work, this covenant that God made with his people. And last week we dealt with the one that God had made with Abraham. This week we're dealing with the covenant that God made with Moses. And we've seen, whether it's through the covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, and now Moses, that really these things point to the hope that we have in Christ. He fulfills this. And just as a way of review, this picture of covenant is an agreement like enacted between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform them, right? And really they are stipulations that they've kind of agreed on in advance. The covenant we're dealing with today is a bilateral covenant. That word bilateral means that there's stipulations on both parties, both the, the one in this case with God and also the people of God, the people of Israel. So it's bilateral. They've got conditions attached to it. Um, the ones in the past that we've done in the past few weeks are called unilateral. Really, it's just God initiated, and they just receive it and walk in that. And these plans that, that God has of redemption really through the covenants is his way of, of intervening, and he's going to really do that through the person and work of Christ, and so we're going to get to celebrate that. So if you have your Bibles, look with me at Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 4, and I want you to see this with me. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, this is God speaking to the people. If you've never studied the Bible before, what, what has already happened is that God's people were put in Egypt as a result of Joseph. If you remember in the book of um, uh, Genesis, there's this guy named Joseph who was pretty much enslaved. His brothers sold him out. Um, that's my way of saying it. Sold him out and, um, and, and sold him off. And he went there and became like a prisoner, a servant in a house. And then he became like the big dog in Egypt under the Pharaoh because God had given him dreams to interpret. And he did such an incredible job with that. Well, eventually what happened is those same brothers that sold him out came needing something. And then there was a way that he was able to redeem and really reconcile with them, which was amazing. And at the end, after Jacob, their dad dies, which is so powerful, right? And they've made, moved their whole family there to Egypt. They think that this is the time they were, that Joseph was waiting on his dad's death for them to basically get payback. And so his brother's like begging him. He's like, no, 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 listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And what happens there is that the whole group, the whole clan is now removed from their homeland where they were with Abraham and his people and are brought to Egypt. Well, what looks to be great then is actually what happens later is that now that whole family line, which is a nation, is there enslaved for 400 years. And if you remember, that's what we read about last week with the covenant with Abraham. He, it said it in Genesis 15, verse 13, that this is the work that would take them there. And so I, I want us to keep that in mind. This is why they're there. And so Moses is, is raised up. There's a lot with that. And, and I just want you to see this picture here that he is, they're being delivered from the Egyptians. So verse 4, it says, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, notice this word, if. This is, you know, it says bilateral, so there's conditions involved. If you will indeed obey my voice, God says, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all earth is mine. And you shall be to me, notice this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, you will be a people that really communicates the work that I have done in your life to other people if you keep this covenant. And we've talked about that in 1 Peter chapter 2 when we did our previous series through 1 Peter. We'll come back to that in a, in a moment. Then he says, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them, and all the people answered and said. He, he gives them these, these things that God said, and notice this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, we agree to everything, absolutely everything that God said, we will agree to it, we'll, we're all in, okay? That's what they say there. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So all of a sudden, he shares that. They're at the base of Mount Sinai, and God gives them some ways to respond Okay, if you keep reading past that from verses 10 to 14, it lets you know that prepare the people for his presence, what you're supposed to look for. There's going to be this cloud, clean all your garments, set limits and boundaries, not to touch the mountain. If you do, you're, you'll die, and he gives them all these things. The next chapter, chapter 20, we dealt with this this past summer when we talked about the Ten Commandments, but there's this key phrase right at the beginning of it. In verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And again, he's just letting him know who it is. This is kind of the picture of the covenant. I'm the Lord your God, and I'm the one who brought you, who delivered you. I've done this work in your life and delivered you out of the house of slavery. If you remember, past couple of weeks we've been using this phrase, the suzerain vassal treaty, and this is a treaty made between two people. This one are two parties. This one's made with a superior and an inferior party. It's the idea where there would be mighty nations who would look out for smaller nations, but the smaller nations would have something to offer the bigger nation. Sometimes it, that smaller nation would be a port city, and they would allow them to come and use their port if the larger nation would protect them from the, the big armies from other countries. Well, this call here right in verse 2 is really 
it's like, look, it's an establishment of who God is, who they're not, and what God has done for them, and then their response to that. And their response to that is the Ten Commandments, the things that God has set in place for them. And the Ten Commandments, as we kind of walk through this past summer, it's a way to relate to a holy God. It's his way of connecting. It lets them know morally ways to, to honor him in their lives and it, to let them know whether what holiness looks like or what sin looks like. It's also a great picture to live how God designed them to live. But what's neat in this narrative is when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai because of the cloud, the quaking, the trembling, and the lightning, the people actually, instead of drawing closer and wanting to be near this this amazing presence of the Lord, they actually retreat. They go far away. And so there's this opportunity for them to experience God's grace in this moment, but they're afraid. And then we see in Exodus 25, again, I'm just kind of taking us on a narrative journey of this. In Exodus 25, where God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Since they're afraid to be near me, may I put a place in the midst of them where I can dwell with them and be near them. Exodus 32, but here's the problem. Moses comes down the the mountain, and he sees that they... Because he delayed, it says in verse 1, they were like waiting, waiting, when's Moses going to come down and tell us what God said? So they were impatient. They felt like they had to worship, so they just melt all their, their gold and they make an idol. And then both God and Moses obviously show anger here, righteous anger towards their sin. Because right off the bat, they, they broke the first commandment of putting other things before the Lord. And then there's a renewal of covenant we see in Exodus 34, and we see this in verses 6 and 7, which says, The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and keeping steadfast love for thousands. I want to pause there because I've shared over the past couple of weeks one of the words that deals with this covenant picture in the Hebrew is the word hesed. And that's the word here. This word of steadfast love is a picture of God's covenant love to his people. He is saying it here to say, look, I made you a promise. I not only made you a promise, but I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise to Noah, to Adam of this covenant love. And I'm letting you know that I'm giving you this steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, the covenant is renewed. And what happens through this whole section of Exodus really is a preparation with a, a great sense of detail of the tabernacle, what the sacrifices will look like. And the sacrifice um, scripture will really be painted clearer in Leviticus. But there's a lot here that, that I want you to understand that there's allusions all the way through um, the tabernacle that point back to Eden. Just little aspects that point to this picture of the presence of God and the place of God so that they would continue to be reminded about this time before sin. And then in this, what seemingly seems sad, 
is at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. They finally get the tabernacle fixed and ready to go. It's presented. And you can imagine, like, they've cut the ribbon. It's opening day. Everybody's ready to see this beauty of God's glory. His presence is near them. And and Moses, their leader, is, is ready to march in. And then verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He was ready to go in, but the glory of the Lord was too thick in that place where he couldn't even enter. I do think that there is this tendency in our minds to almost belittle or demean the value and worth of the glory and holiness of God. Where sometimes we'll come to worship and we'll like haphazardly in very small ways just worship and just be here just for the sake of showing up and feeling a little bit of appeasement just for our attendance. But we need to understand that the God who has sent his son to redeem and ransom us is a God who is holy and righteous, who is separate from us. And one of the reasons why we don't think enough of God's love is because we don't realize how holy and separate and righteous he is. And that's problematic. And so that's why many of us continue lives of sin and don't think much of it. Because we don't realize the lengths that he went through. The things to overcome in us to redeem us. So this is powerful here. This picture here is just one of many glimpses of God's holiness and his righteousness that we cannot in no way belittle. We see later in Leviticus 16 the specifics of the offering when the high priest would go in for the day of atonement for the holy of holies. And they would do this like once a year. One person was able to go in and make an offering both for themselves and also for the people. And they would do this once a year. And here's the thing about that. Each year at the day of atonement was a reminder for the whole nation of their inability to keep their end of the covenant. Every year. And every year, it would be like they would, there would be a time of like, praise the Lord for this. At the same time, they didn't realize they're also celebrating the fact that they themselves are incapable of keeping their end of the bargain with God. With that in mind, this is where we turn to the New Testament. So I want to invite you to look in your Bibles. It's just this one verse that, that really, we, we alluded to it last week. We come back to it this week because it really is powerful to think about. It, it's kind of the, the nativity story in John's gospel. It doesn't really give the whole picture of, you know, a, a young girl who's betrothed to Joseph, you know, riding on the back of a donkey. It, it's actually more theological and deep and Really, the implications are amazing here, but I want you to see it with me. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. The Word, the, the logos of God, the reality of God's presence became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among them. Among us. So bearing in mind the tabernacle, how amazing and majestic 
the, the glory and the holiness of God, so much so that Moses could not even embark on it, came in flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, John says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, resting, walking, speaking, eating, healing among them. Those pictures in Exodus were pointing to this, this fulfillment of this man walking among them, holy and separate among them. We, we think it's just a beautiful scene. We've got this inflatable out front in the lawn with, you know, a little baby and a mom and a dad and, you know, some animals. Awesome. But this is what was taking place. And, and if you look at a nativity, if you, you're sitting there and you've got it set up in some porcelain figures, what, what my mama called whatnots, you know, set on your mantle, and you're missing the fact that it is a picture of the holiness of God walking among them. And then we want to celebrate in such a way as to demean that birth that was really God coming in, showing himself incredibly faithful, honoring his end of the covenant because we couldn't. That's the baby. So it's more than just some inconspicuous birth on the alleyways of Bethlehem. It is a hope-filled link of our inability to save ourselves and God's ability to rescue sinners like me and you. That's what's in play. And then the writer of Hebrews like says, hey, you, you kind of see it, you kind of understand, but let me do the work of merging these things for you. And so with that in mind, look with me at Hebrews 4. We're going to be in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. And again, all I want to do is just help you faithfully see this picture of this birth. It's far greater, far greater than just a few presents and trinkets that we put under a tree. So Hebrews 4, verse 14, in mind, keep in mind this, what we just talked about briefly from Exodus. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So again, like in Leviticus 16, it's once a year this person would do it. But now we've got this great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Again, the picture of the tabernacle is in view. But the the, the tabernacle was just a glimpse, a copy, as we're going to see in a moment, a shadow of the reality of what is true before the holiness of God walking in heaven. And here's a hope-filled statement, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have one that just kind of understands. No, in every way, he gets our brokenness. He gets our suffering. He gets the grief that we cry out with, the lamentations that we sing over in pain. He gets it. But 
one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Maintained his holiness. Maintained reflecting the glory of God. So with that in mind, the writer of Hebrews invites, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us not be like the people of Israel who are staying far back from the work of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. But let us with confidence draw near to a holy God in Christ who has done this work for us. We don't need to be timid. We don't need to send someone else for us. We can go directly as a result of Christ, that we may receive mercy, this mercy that was talked about in the renewal of the covenant in Exodus 34, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's amazing. But let's keep, keep going. Hebrews 9, and we're going to kind of hit the latter part of the chapter there, starting in verse 24 and go into chapter 10. And again, today we're just... Again, this is kind of a topical way to kind of help us see this picture of covenant fulfilled in Christ. Verse 24 says this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. Notice this detail, which are copies of the true things. I want you to catch this because it's important. Because if you were looking at all those stipulations and ways to have the tabernacle and later the temple, those things were amazing things. They were the best of the best that humanity had to offer as far as elements and substances. That was everything they had. And all of those things are just a bunch of copies, models, compared to the true things. He says, but in the heaven itself... Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. So he didn't have to keep offering. Christ once for all accomplished for all who would believe salvation and true atonement before God. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Listen to this, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those. Notice this caveat, this incredible detail. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now notice that phrase in contrast to the people who were at the base of the mountain waiting on Moses. He delayed, so let's build an idol. For those of us who are eagerly waiting for Christ to return, who aren't sitting there constructing some other thing to bow to, but waiting for him. And I promise you, if we're real, if we, before the Holy Spirit of God, who sees and knows our hearts, many of us are not waiting for him. We're settling Verse 1 of chapter 10, for since the law, 
has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? He's just using logic. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But here it is. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sin every year. And if you're continuing that pattern, that reminder of sin every year, because you're habitual in sin, it may be that you've never truly trusted Jesus to save you. And some of us have to face that, especially in our region where it's just kind of, it's kind of social. You're a follower of Christ. Of course I am. Yeah, I live in the South. That's part of, you know, I, I pay taxes. You know what I'm saying? I vote. I get loud on Facebook. Yes, I'm a believer. But are you? And then skipping down to verse 10 of Hebrews 10, it says, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This sanctification is a separation from sinfulness. We're not talking about the process of God making us to be holy here. This is a finished work. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, which means he is done. That sacrifice is complete in him. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. And notice verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has done this work in you. You are completely made whole. Here's the thing, though. Do you live? Do you live as though you're whole? Do you live as though this is true of you? And if we're honest, man, and you fake it with me all you want, but before holy God who knows your hearts and knows the intentions of your heart, do you? Does your life correspond to the truth that a holy God has come in and transformed your wicked heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh that sees and confesses sin and repents of sin and daily remind yourself of the hope that you have in Christ? Is that true of you? With that, not only do we have a responsibility of, of daily confession and repentance, but we also have a responsibility to represent God to the world. Going back to what was mentioned earlier where God says that I will make you a chosen race, right? A royal priest and a holy nation. That's our call as well. We see this as we have talked about a couple months back in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at this with me as we close. In verse 9 and 10 it says, but you, he was talking to the elect exiles of the dispersion here. We see at the beginning of chapter 1. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you are separate this way. You've been called as a holy nation, not so that you can walk around with some mantle, some name tag, or some banner of something special about you. You are doing this because you have a responsibility from God before the world to do something. And here's your responsibility. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have a role and a responsibility in Christ to do this. It's far greater. It's far greater than, than you know, don't take, you know, Christ out of Christmas and all these other things that you feel this conviction on. It's you living a life that corresponds to that truth. Don't take Christ out of your life. Live in such a way that, that proclaims this. And this is the key. I want you to, to, I mean, please own and walk this out in your life. That We, as a church, get to reflect this marvelous light. The one who's called us out of darkness into light. We get to do this where we live at, where we work at, where we play, like where we shop at, right? We get to go to these places, and in those places is where we do this. We don't have places, oh, this is a place I don't want anybody to know my life, so I'm going to turn my light out. <laughs> I'm just going to flip the switch just long enough so that I can go in there and be who I want to be and then come back out, I'll flip it back on. no. As Paul talks about in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He is your life. And then in encapsulation, he reminds you, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So church, what I want to invite us to do is just to have a moment where we, before the Lord, just pray. And what I'm going to do is just, in silence, give you a moment. If you've got sin to confess before the Lord, do it. If you've got an area of your life or areas of your life where you are not repentant before the Lord, may this be a time that you do business before a holy God. And then I'll pray for us. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for Jesus. The fact that you have come to dwell among us and we got to behold the Son from the Father full of grace and truth Thank you for the sinless life. 
for dying for wicked people like those of us in this room. Thank you for the victory over death and the grave through the resurrection. Thank you for your ascension. Thank you for the fact that you are seated. You're interceding on our behalf. Thank you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, those of you who have trusted you. I pray that your spirit would continue to draw them to confession and repentance and they would live lives that would proclaim your marvelous story, proclaim this truth of, of turning darkness into light in, in people. We thank you for this work. We trust you with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we are so glad that you've come to worship with us. It, it means more than you know. And those of you who are family members and friends uh, of, of Lindsay and Madeline, thank you so much for taking the time to come and worship and celebrate their lives. Thank you for the way that you've invested in their lives, that you get to celebrate your investment and your prayer for them. Thank you for doing that. Church, we love you. We're so grateful we get to serve beside you. Go in Jesus' name. Have a great week.